Amen. If you have a Bible with you this morning, open up to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 11 and 12 this morning. James chapter 4, uh, verses 11 and 12. And as you're opening up there this morning, I do want to say a word about how anxious I am to get to uh, uh, have a special Sunday all together next Sunday. I'm especially uh, excited about taking the Lord's Supper. I am really looking forward to uh, just that sweet reminder of the fellowship of the saints that although it's been such a strange season for that, and in so many ways I've missed that in, so, in, in just so many clear ways, at the same time, nonetheless, uh, I've felt the sense of the fellowship of this church in, in so many unique ways during this season. And so I love each of you so much, and I look forward to taking the Lord's Supper with you uh, next Sunday. Look, look forward to that. You have your Bibles open there to James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to ask you if you would go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. James writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page being read, God Himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother... The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, I thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together and, Father, to hear your word. And, Lord, it is my prayer that by your Spirit we will hear your word and be changed this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I know you are, but what am I? I'm rubber and you're glue, and whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. If you've not heard those two, I know you've heard this one. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You see, from a very early age, I think we are already beginning to think and think through and learn how to deal with those who speak evil, who speak evil against one another. From a playground bully, and believe it or not, there are folks who are grown-ups who still try to bully We try to come up with ways to deal with those who speak evil. We've all known someone who's irascible, who's just hard to please, who no matter who it is, what they do, what they say, this person has something bad to say about them. I think in very much particular, we have a situation here where James, when he talks about speaking evil, I I really think he's got something like slander in view. But on top of that, I I think it's beyond just slander. There's no question false accusations are within view here. But then on top of that, I think judging those even who have actually done things wrong and speaking evil against them is something we must not tolerate in our own lives as Christians. Do not, the Bible says, speak evil against one another, brothers. I want you to know that I think one of the greatest theological losses of the modern age. What I mean by that is one of the things 
that helps hold society together, especially here in America. One of the things that helps our experiment here in the United States of government thrive and work well is a historic shared view of mankind created in God's image. It's what theologians call the Imago Dei, the image of God. And man is created in God's image, but we, I think, as a society, have forgotten that. I think so often, as we've collectively lost just this internal sort of gut-level instinct that human beings are something other than everything else, and that's because God made them in His image, I think we've lost so much. That death doesn't matter, someone might say. It's just a fetus. Their quality of life won't be great. It's okay if they want to kill themselves. Or it's okay if they die. Oh, that's just a thug. What happens to them doesn't matter. Well, when you're an idiot, that's what happens to you. Oh, that's how rednecks act. That's not how we act. I often wonder and ponder whether or not our lost vision for humans being created in the image of God has led our language to change. Or, I wonder sometimes, if the way we speak about others is also working in the other direction and making us forget because of the language we use and the way we speak evil about others. I think if we're not careful, we recognize it's impacting our theology. What we believe about God and what we believe God has said about whether people matter or not. And people do. Human beings are created in God's image. Either that way, this morning, I I simply want to drive the point that James is making home to you. When you say something about your neighbor, you're saying something about God. When you say something about your neighbor, you are making a theological statement, even if you don't know that's the case. Even if it's unwitting, you are saying something about them. You are saying something about yourself And you're saying something about God. And so today I hope that you'll see these three points from this text. They're going to help you evaluate your understanding of your neighbor, yourself, and your God. And I think that will impact the way you speak about others. Here's the first thing I want you to think about today is I want you to think about what you say about your neighbor. I just want you to consider this morning what you're saying when you say something about your neighbor. Neighbor. Now notice what James says here in these two verses. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. That's an important word there, right? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And I think any good Christian reads this and recognizes that what the Bible's talking about When it calls us brothers, it's talking about other Christians, right? Those who are your brothers and sisters in the faith. The brethren is a shorthand way to talk about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those (coughs) who are self-righteous about these sorts of things might read through this text, right? And and get through this and say, of course that's how I would treat Christians. And you've got to understand how much more pronounced it would have been in the world to which James was writing. Because many of these people... I I don't know anyone 
I, I really don't. I've not met anyone here in America that I grew up with or that I even went to college or seminary with who is from the United States who, when they got saved, had a falling out, permanent falling out with their family over following Jesus. I, I'm not saying there aren't any. I'm sure it happens. I just don't know them personally, where they were written off or cast out and, and no, not allowed to be a part of their family anymore. And yet, so often it was the case that when someone was saved in the first century, they were ostracized not only from their family, but from all of society. This was a very small sect of people at this time and this place. And so as James's readers would have been reading this, they would have said, of course, that's my family. It's the only family I know. It wasn't just somewhere they went once a week, right? It was their entire support system for many of these people. They had left and abandoned a pagan world. They'd been ostracized by society. And they're saying, of course, I want to treat my brothers like that. But what about those who persecuted them? What about those who ostracized them? What about those who mistreated them? Notice what James does. He gets us thinking down these lines, and we think, of course we would treat a true believer like this, but how does he end verse 12? But who are you to judge your neighbor? And these Christians would have known exactly what James meant when he used the word neighbor. He meant it the exact same way our Lord did. And that means anyone and everyone you meet. People have, for centuries, been trying to get out of what the word neighbor means. In fact, when Jesus introduced us to this thought, what was the first question that was asked him? But Lord, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? There's no question that we have an obligation to our Christian brothers and sisters to behave in such a way toward them. And some Christians don't even meet that line of reasoning. They don't even treat fellow Christians well. One time, um, I preached at another church, and uh, I was the, the pastor was out that day, and I preached there, and uh, this was years and years ago, and uh, people kept coming up to me afterwards saying, now listen, I, I'm, this is not a pride thing at all. I know what, when people do this, what they're really doing. It was really nothing to do with me. Um, I think if uh, a you know, an upturned mop with a bucket for a head had preached that Sunday, they would have done the same thing. For all practical purposes, that's what happened. I mean, you guys recognize. They just kept coming up to me saying, wow, I bet you're a great pastor, aren't you? They say, it's just not, we've not heard a sermon like that in years. Oh, and they, they were complaining about their church. I knew their pastor and preacher, he's a better preacher than I am, no question about that. I knew that for a fact, and I thought, these people are complaining about their church. And then something dawned on me about halfway through when someone came up to me and said, I just don't know why our church isn't growing. It's just not growing. I don't know why, because you hate it. You're out griping about it out in, out in town. Everybody's hearing you gripe about your church. You finish griping, you say, anyway, you want to come this Sunday? Of course not. If we mistreat each other in the Lord's church, if we don't love one another in the Lord's church, who wants to come? We don't have that problem here, but we have to guard against it, right? We have to show one another love. And yet, we don't just have an obligation to our Christian brothers and an obligation then to our neighbors, anyone and everyone, not just other Christians. But on top of that, we have an obligation to God, not to speak evil. This is 
a command from the Lord. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. The Bible goes on to talk about how that's a right that only belongs to God. Who are you to speak about your neighbor? You have an obligation to your neighbor, an obligation to your Christian brothers, but more than that, you have an obligation to God. I want to encourage you to be really careful about the sort of terms you you choose to describe people who are created in God's image. The vilest of sinners who has ever lived is still a human being created in the image of God. And no amount of sin is capable of removing that from a person. They are still someone who God has made. And so I I just want to encourage you to be careful in using words that are meant to dehumanize people. Years ago, or a few years ago, I don't know, I can't, I am not the, let me just put it like this. I'm going to preface this illustration for all of you here to say, I am not the person in my household who keeps track of royal babies. Okay, so I don't know the years and dates and everything else. But I'm aware of the to-do, so to speak, surrounding royal babies enough to know, I saw an article several years ago that became a controversy. It was a controversial argument. Everybody was upset about it. And do you know what it said? It said, Uh, that Kate Middleton was pregnant with another royal baby. People were angry about that. Do you know why? Because it didn't say royal fetus, right? Now, think about that for just a moment. We would have been upset, perhaps, if we had said, you know, there's a royal clump of cells that exists somewhere in England, therefore all good Englanders should rejoice or whatever. We, We would have been like, man, that's a weird way to say that, right? And yet we live in a world where it's weird to call what is in a woman's womb a baby. Do you see the way, like, just the very term humanizes what's there? And I I believe that that a fetus in a womb, the scientific term fetus in a womb is a baby. I I believe it's a human being created in God's image. I think you guys know that I believe that, but it's, it's worth repeating again. But think about then the way that language holds such power, right? Just the way that it can be a scandal for a tabloid to call what's in the the womb of a pregnant woman a baby, and then think about the way that we so often use dehumanizing language in other ways, and I think we ought to be careful with it as Christians. And so I really do mean that I don't think you ought to use any sort of slurs and epithets to talk about people who are created in God's image. I think you ought to be careful if you find yourself saying things that are dehumanizing. Now, I think that goes without saying that Christians ought not to use racial slurs of any sort. Hopefully, that's low-hanging fruit. We can surely, to goodness, get that out of the way. But on top of that, isn't it clear that we ought to be careful calling people things like rednecks? That's a way that we sort of write people off and say they don't count, say that they're not worth something. Shouldn't we be careful how we use a word like thug? Didn't Jesus himself warn us that we're in danger of the very fires of hell when we call someone a fool? And how often do people make an innocent mistake in traffic? Listen, I'm preaching to myself here. The same mistake we might make 30 minutes later, and what do we say? Even sometimes when people are in the car, but often when nobody's looking, we say, what an idiot. What a fool, what a moron. 
What are we saying about people when we say those things? These kinds of, this kinds of language doesn't only do. You know, I think we so often as Christians say, as long as I don't say it out loud to someone, that's the only place damage can be done is to them. But believe it or not, maybe for real, maybe they really are rubber in your glue. Maybe, you're, maybe more damage is being done to your own soul than you realize when you say those things. Maybe you find yourself calloused and hardened to the plight of others. James is going to talk about folks that we don't like to always think about before this book's over. And we're going to find the way that he's unearthing the way that our souls are calloused in pride toward people who aren't like us. And so much of that is because of how we speak about them. Be careful. What salt and light is there left in this world? How can we reclaim these doctrines that are so essential to everything? How can a Christian fight back against the darkness in a culture that sees human beings as no different than any other creature? How do we do that? Maybe we should start with how we talk about other people. I wish I could tell you how often unbelievers are shocked when I'm nice to them and they find out I'm a Baptist preacher. It's one of the scariest experiences I ever have. Anytime someone says, you're a Baptist or you're a Christian, and I've just been cordial and nice, I'm horrified by it. We must be the people who recognize that the best way for Christians to change the culture is to act and witness like Christians, to behave like Christians. That means that primarily we're not creating great church programs to change the culture, even though those are good things. Uh, Ultimately, that means we aren't primarily creating beautiful movies or art or music as Christians to change the culture, even though those are good things. Ultimately, that means we're not primarily voting to change the culture, even though it's important, I think, for Christians to vote their conscience. But the reality is the main way that God has given us to transform the world around us is to be salt and light in the world around us. And Christ-like, countercultural Christian behavior coupled with the preaching of the gospel is what will transform Christian society. Sometimes, perhaps, God is as concerned with what you're saying as what you're doing. So often we get the opposite. We get it mixed up. Be careful what you say about your neighbor. The second thing I want you to consider this morning is this. Consider what you say about yourself. When you say, speak evil against your neighbor, consider what you're saying about yourself. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil, speaks against a brother or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, we're not supposed to just be hearers of the word. We're supposed to be doers of the word. But so often we act like we're judges. I like to play golf. I know some of you like to play golf. And uh, you ever play golf? with somebody who's a better golf coach than they are a golfer? Bet you have, haven't you? That's usually me. That's me. I'm a great coach and bad at everything. But I can tell you, hey, this is how they told me to do it. I can't do it, but I bet if you did it, it would be great. You're a terrible golfer or terrible at this or terrible at that, and you start giving out advice. What does that seem like? seems like you're a judge 
of what should happen, but not a doer of what should happen, right? But who do you want to hear from? You want to hear from somebody who can do it. You want to hear from someone who's capable. When you say you're a judge, when you speak evil against your brother, you're saying you're a judge of the law and not a doer of the law. You're not a doer of the word yourself. Be careful in judgment. When you don't love your neighbor as yourself, didn't Jesus, y'all remind me, did Jesus say that was an important part of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Didn't Jesus say this is the great commandment? And so when we don't do that, right, what are we saying? We're saying we're above the law. We're a judge of the law, not a doer of the law. That we're on par with God. That's what we're saying about ourselves. When we, for any reason, for any excuse, when we abandon that command, what we're really saying to the world is, yeah, I know you've heard what God says, but I know what matters most. Now, would anyone here ever dare say something like that? with their mouth. I wouldn't. I'd be afraid I'd get struck dead. You know, it's blasphemy to say that about God as a Christian. And yet, how often do we do it with our lives? Don't you see the irony in the way that so often what we see is our own zeal for the law, and in, in what we often see is our passion for the law and our passion for doing what's right. We so often find ourselves speaking evil against those who we feel have transgressed the law. And in so doing, we are actually turning the law on its head ourselves. We're saying it applies to them, but not to me. Those things are true for thee, but not for me. When you speak evil against a brother or a neighbor, no matter your motives, then you are speaking evil against the law and you are judging God's perfect law. And what you are saying is that you belong in the role of judge. But we ought not to do so. Because you are not as just as you think you are. You are not a perfect judge. Nobody's ever judged and thought, you know... You know, I'm going to judge my neighbor, and I'm sitting here thinking, I could be wrong, though. If that thought crosses your mind, you're going to shut up, right? <laughs> I don't want to get out here on a limb, you know. I'm going to be quiet. But no, we always think we're totally right in this. But listen, the, the Bible shows examples like this. Think about Joseph, the earthly father, the adoptive earthly father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He finds out Mary's pregnant, Right? Once again, I talk about this sometimes, chronological snobbery, where we look back and we think we were so much smarter than people in the Bible. But Joseph knew where babies come from, right? And so when his wife becomes pregnant, what does he say? What does the Bible say? And her husband Joseph, being a just man, Matthew 1.19, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, what does justice look like biblically? If we were to go purely by the letter of the law, it's a lot more extreme and severe, right? And on top of that, Joseph, in his heart and mind, had been jilted. He'd been mistreated by this woman who, in his mind, would have been unfaithful to him. So Joseph didn't burn a bridge in a way that would prevent Mary from staying with him. He had just purposed in his heart to divorce her quietly. And fascinatingly enough, the Bible calls that justice now wouldn't it make sense for the bible to say and joseph was a man of mercy therefore no the bible says that is biblical justice you see we're not as just as we think we are are we 
We get out ahead of God's justice. Woody and I were texting about this verse earlier this week, and Woody sent me a great phrase. He said, you know, if a Pharisee had written that verse, it would have said, Joseph, being a weak man and unwilling to do what was commanded by the law, purposed to divorce her quietly. That's so often how we think about biblical justice, but the Bible calls biblical justice merciful justice. You're not as just as you think you are, so you ought to be careful in judging others. Someone like Joseph, who seemed to have every right to be a judge and a half to his betrothed Mary, instead chose to be merciful, and the Bible called him just. You see, you say you deserve the Lord's rights when you judge your neighbor. When we do this, we're saying that we deserve the rights of the Lord, and yet the Bible says this so plainly, and I want you to feel the weight of this sentence this morning. Who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Think about what you have to think about yourself to judge your neighbor. And this morning, I want to press upon every one of you to flee from self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a worse blight on your soul than no righteousness is. And so many people who are self-righteous think it's their place to judge those who are no righteous. And that is not what the Scripture teaches. You will do uncalculable damage to your ability to know and love God by depending on yourself and judging others. Be careful what you say about yourself when you speak evil against your brother. But finally, I want you to think about what you say about God. I want you to think about what you say about God. When you speak about your neighbor, you're saying something about them, something you believe about them. You're saying something you believe about yourself, and you're saying something you believe about God. Don't think for a moment that the only people who are theologians are people who have been to seminary. Every single person who has ever thought a thought about God, who has ever lived on this earth and considered that there is a God, is in their very nature a theologian. It's part of what it means to be created in God's image. And so when we speak evil against our neighbor, one of the things we're doing is we are saying, what are we saying about God? You are saying that God is not enough of a judge. You ever worked on a project with somebody? You ever worked, I've been like where a bunch of men are together and they're putting something together. Has anybody ever been there before? Does anybody know this guy? Get out of the way, let me do this guy. Everybody knows that guy, right? If you've ever done a project with a bunch of men at the beginning, let me just give a piece of advice. Everyone needs to vote in the chief at the beginning. That guy's in charge. Everybody else is just a set of hands to help that guy, right? If, if I get Woody to come help something in my house, I just say, tell me what to do. I don't know. Tell me what to do. Now, can you imagine being that guy with God? God says what? I have appointed all men once to die and then what? To face the judgment. And and if you read about the judgment of God in the Bible, there's some people who refuse to believe the Bible because of the severity of the justice of God. And what do we do? We say, that's not soon enough, God, out of my way. That's not severe enough, God, out of my way. And what you're saying is that God is not enough, that God's judgment isn't enough. Do you see what the Bible says? The Bible says there is only one lawgiver and judge, and he is able to save and to destroy. God's justice and severity is enough. So I would even encourage you to not say things like, there's a special place in hell for that kind of person. That's not Christian language. You don't know. You don't want to know what hell looks like. I promise you. 
You don't want to know where the special dungeon is. You don't want to know. And anyone who can say that sort of thing and who can think through that sort of thing, you've just not thought enough about hell and the severity of the wrath of God. What else are you saying about God? You're saying that the gap between your righteousness and God's righteousness is minimal. Who are you to judge your neighbor, the Bible says? The Christian who is a judgmental busybody, who's judging everybody all the time, has a pretty low view of their own sin. They're saying, there's all you people, and then there's me and God up here. That's not a Christian attitude, my friends. We are all the same in the shadow of the cross. We have all been brought to the same low of lows at the feet of Jesus, recognizing He is King of kings, He is Lord of lords. There is no righteousness we can bring but our own filthy rags, and the only righteousness any of us have have been given us by Jesus. As James says, every good and perfect gift is from above, and anything good you've got, any ability you have to say that's right and that's wrong is 1,000% from God and God alone. It's not from you. And what you ultimately say when you speak about your neighbor, you're telling them that God feels about your neighbor the way you feel about them. And we know when we judge our neighbor, there's no grace, there's no love, but the Bible says there is only one lawgiver and judge. And when you claim to be on his committee, yeah, God and I have discussed this, and you're out. When you claim to be one who can say who's in and who's out, you're communicating something horrible to those who desperately need the Lord's grace, who desperately need to know the depth and the horrors of their sin. And what you can do is say, let me tell you about my sin. But let me tell you about my Jesus who saved me by His grace. I was lower than low. I was the chief of all sinners. And it might have looked on the outside like I was goody two-shoes. But I know on the inside it was nothing but a whitewashed tomb full of rottenness and filth. And Jesus saved my soul anyway. And no matter what pig pen you've been living in over the last years, there's room at the cross for you. My friends, there is nothing you say in a vacuum. And you must remember that when you speak of your brother or when you speak of your neighbor, you are saying something. Of course, you're saying something about them, but you're also saying something about yourself. But most importantly, when you speak about your neighbor, you are speaking about your God. And the question I have today for you is this. What is it that you're saying? What are you saying? This morning, if you need some time with the Lord, we're going to have a few moments of reflection. And you may be a believer and say, Pastor, I just need some time to pray and repent of some things. This time is available for you. You may be an unbeliever and you may say, I've let bitterness toward people who claim to speak about God control my life for too long. Today I want to meet the Jesus of grace that you've preached about today. I'd love, after the service is over, to talk to you about that. We, the, the altar is not totally open right now simply because we're trying to be as safe and careful as possible. But that doesn't mean Jesus can't save your soul. And if you need to talk to me, we'll talk as soon as the service is over. You come get me. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. I'd love to talk to you today when the service is over about what it means uh, for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want you to do business with the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his word. 
And God, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even now, our Father, I pray that we would be moved and changed by the power of your word. Lead us by your kindness to repentance today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.